0: We're on part two of uh, the series we started last week, The Heart of the Bridegroom. And uh, I just, I have to just tell you, I, all day today, have just felt the Lord resting on my heart uh, over this message this morning and even this afternoon, this evening, just feeling the Lord resting on me. And uh, I, I have a tremble in my, in my heart just about the, I, the wonder and the fierceness of who God is as a bridegroom God. And, uh, and I'll share this with you. So last week, preached that first message, talked about God's delight and his desire for people and his affections and his emotions. And uh, last Sunday night, went to sleep and had a dream. And I won't give you the details of the dream, but I will tell you this. When I woke up, it was one of those dreams where I had to like shake it off so that I would just realize I was I was actually having a dream. It wasn't reality. It was that level. You know, when you, you have a dream so intense, you, you, get, you get up from the dream and you go, whoa, was that That was only a dream. Woo, that was only a dream. And um, it was that level of a dream. And I would just say this. In the dream, God was introducing me to himself as a bridegroom with a defrauded heart. And the yearning and the aching in the heart of God for his people. The pain and the jealousy of his own heart for his people. And literally, when I woke up, it was all day long. It was just resting on me. I, I mean, I just was like, oh. I mean, in any moment, I could just sort of just close my eyes and, oh, I just feel the groan, the ache of the yearning heart of God, the bridegroom. And the way he feels about his people and the way he feels when his people go after other lovers. It was that intense. And it was so, so strong on me for about a day, day and a half. And uh, for a minute, I thought it was the devil. It was one of those, it was so intense. And it took me a few days later and then one of our leaders goes, you know, maybe that wasn't the devil. Maybe that was the Lord introducing you to a facet of his heart that you hadn't touched in a while. And I went, man, that that might be it. That might be the Lord actually just instructing me. So uh, I'm preaching tonight out of that place, not from the dream per se, but I I realized later that this week as I began to study about the bridegroom again and just reapproach the verses, that the thing that was highlighted to me was the jealous heart of God, the jealous love of God as a bridegroom. And so that's where we're gonna go tonight. We're gonna talk specifically about who God is as a jealous bridegroom. Now, that is an interesting thought because when we say jealous, uh, you know, that's, that doesn't tend to be an attribute we look for in uh, our friends or our perspective, you know, mate. You know, you don't just go out there looking for the person that's the most jealous of everyone else and go, sweet, that's the one I want to marry. That's the boyfriend, that's the girlfriend I want, the really jealous one. who's <laughs> always suspicious, totally insecure, that's what I'm shooting for. You know, you don't, you don't, you know, try to figure out, okay, I want a bunch of friends and you look for friends who are completely jealous and always looking over your shoulder wondering if, you know, somehow you're stabbing them in the back or spending more time with others. so our problem is we tend to think of jealous in a certain way, but God uses jealous as a key descriptor of himself, And so there, right there, we should recognize we have a problem in understanding because if we took a poll in this room and we said, is jealousy a positive or negative attribute, probably the majority of us, if not all of us would say it's a negative attribute, yet it's one that God says of himself multiple times and emphasizes and then expresses and manifests throughout the scripture. I was sharing this with the worship team this morning and just in sharing kind of what I was going to uh, speak on, and they said, one of them said, and another one corroborated, they said, I heard this that 10 years ago, Oprah Winfrey came out and said that she uh, heard the scripture, our God is a jealous God, and it struck her so wrong that she said she knew she wouldn't agree from that moment forward with the God of the Bible, because she assumed his jealousy was aimed at her in a negative way, like he wants my stuff. I know that's pretty, you know, that's not exactly revelatory. <laughs> um, but that was a, a key issue that caused her to form a certain, you know, mentality. Now I don't know the truth of that exactly. I mean, I know one of a our, our, our couple of our folks said it to me this day, so maybe it is exactly like that. But um, here's the point. When we look at God, and this is under A, when we look at God, we have to, hear and pay attention to what he says about himself so that we can get a right understanding of who he is. And at the point where what he says about himself rubs us the wrong way, we are candidates for revelation because undoubtedly he's going to rub us the wrong way we're gonna hear him say things that are not the way we think. They're not our ways. In fact, he says as much, doesn't he? His ways are higher than our ways, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways above our ways and his thoughts above our thoughts. They're not our thoughts, they're not our ways. And so when we get rubbed the wrong way by God, when he's talking about himself, guess who needs to make the adjustment? Not God, it's us. And, and so this is a perfect opportunity for us to be instructed by the Holy Spirit as we engage with this key facet of what God says about himself and calling himself jealous. If it's a negative attribute for us, that gives us lots of room to get on God's team. And so when we look at what he says about himself, it's one of the key ways that we we find out who he is and what his nature is. So with that in mind, I want to look at Exodus 34. You, You know this story. We've talked about this a lot, There's Moses. He says, I don't want to go from this place if you don't go with us, God. And the Lord goes, I'll send an angel. And Moses goes, I don't want an angel. I want you. And sometimes the Lord does that, doesn't he? He kind of just, he gives us a response to see if it will evoke hunger in us. He goes, I'll I'll do, you know, I'll do a little bit for you. And you say, no, 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 I need all of you. And he goes, I like to hear that. Because I like to give all of me to those that want all of me. And so Moses goes, Awesome, so you're gonna go with us? He goes, Yeah, I'll go with you. And then Moses goes, Well, I'm on a roll. Show me your glory. Don't just come, let me see the depth of who you are. And that word glory is more than just power, it's the depth of the nature, the depth of the beauty, the depth of the wonder. It's the depth of God in manifestation. Moses asks, he goes, let me see everything. Tell me everything. And God goes, if I do that, it will kill you because no one can see my face and live. And notice he asked for glory and the Lord immediately said, it's face. There's a whole message there. There's several messages actually. But the point becomes this, he goes, I will do this for you, I'll pass before you, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I will declare my name before you. And that's what we have to dial into, because when Moses asks for glory, the Lord says, I'll declare my name, and the declaration of the name of God is the declaration of the nature of God. And so therein we find this, that the knowledge of him is weighty glory. Who he is is weighty glory, so the Lord passes by Moses and he declares the name. And let's just pick it up here in Exodus 34, verse five. Now the Lord descended in the cloud. He stood with him there and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, or Yahweh, Yahweh-el. I mean, I just wonder what it really sounded like. He heard God say His name, Jehovah, Jehovah El. I mean, how what did it sound like? How intense? How thunderous? How? Uh, that's that's just awesome. And then He says, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I mean, what a staggering declaration of his nature, of who he is. This passage, more than any other, has continuously plumb-lined me in my understanding of who God is. I come back to it regularly, and I reference it, and I allow it, to rewrite my conceptions because I will form conceptions based on my experiences, based on all sorts of opinions and and, uh, and unbeknownst to me that I'll have mentalities that are askew from what God says about himself. So I'll come back to this passage and regularly read through these words and then study them out and allow them to just, just sort of drape over me so that my conception of who he is is according to what he says about himself and not something that I've formed in my own mind. Something that we tend to do, talking about believers, we tend to fall in the same trap that the children of Israel did. We tend to make gods in our own image and likeness. Just like they made a calf out of their own conception of God. We tend to do that too. And we ascribe to God things that are absolutely not worthy of him. They're inferior of him. We have ascribe to him ideas about him that are not at all, who he is. So, the best thing that we can do is go back to the word, find out what he says about himself. Now, here's what he says He goes, I am merciful. I am gracious. I'm patient. It's, it's inexhaustibly patient. That's long suffering. That's the word. Inexhaustibly patient. I abound in goodness and truth. I keep mercy. I'm forgiving. And then he says this, and I'm just. I don't clear the unrepentant guilty, which is what he's describing there about the middle of verse seven on. He goes, I am so merciful and so ready to be tender. I'm absolutely in love with you and at the same time, I'm fully just. And therein we find this amazing, how do I even say it? Any example would be improper, but I'll just try this mosaic in the attributes of God where we have woven together what we would conceive of as contradictory attributes, but God says, I am those things and I am without contradiction. He says, I am merciful and I am just and I am that way. See, you and I, we have to delay mercy to operate in judgment. God does mercy and judgment as one reality. who he is. He is transcendent. He is of another order. You and I cannot even begin to operate the way he operates. He is on he is in another order all by himself. All of his attributes are are without contradiction. He can operate in all of them simultaneously and it's, it's never a tug of war within his soul. He's never conflicted. And he declares that about himself right here. He says, I am merciful and I am just. Well, here's what I, I, I ran into this week. That just, man, it, it just struck a chord in me in such a big way. And it's verse 14. Because after he instructs Moses a little bit more, he goes, I'm going to do wonders before you. He goes, you're going to drive out uh, all the ites out of the promised land. You're going to take the, the possession of what I've promised And then he says this in verse 14, he goes, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Now, did we not just hear him declare the name of God to to, to Moses? Isn't that what he just did? Didn't he just declare his name to Moses with a bunch of attributes? Not a trick question, yes he did. And then, just a few verses later, in the same breath, he says, My name is jealous. And right there, I go, Well, you didn't put jealous in the list. I don't see that as one of them. And you and I, right there, we have to stop and pause and let this thing wash over us. We have to really allow the Holy Spirit to to instruct our hearts what's God even saying? Because the declaration, Jehovah, Jehovah El, and he says all these attributes, and then he gives us this other thing, jealous, that's not in the list. What's he really doing there? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's taking that list of attributes, and he's summarizing them in one package. And if you could take verse five through seven and put one word on it and say, what does this mean? This means God is Jealous. Now, here's our problem. Our problem is we don't like jealousy. We were taught not to be jealous, right? Not to be envious. We think of jealousy as envious, insecurity, covetous. You know, we think about jealousy in this really negative way. And so when God says he's jealous, we have the hardest time connecting to it. But his summary statement over his name and nature is jealous. And this is what I'm coming to. I'm realizing this as somebody who's studied the message of intimacy with God for 13, 14 years now. And specifically looked at who he is as a bridegroom and gone through all the verses. And I mean, studied Song of Solomon as a hobby and and just, I don't know, countless hours of prayer. And I really feel like this. I'm just scratching the surface. I'm not giving you that to be like, and I'm the guy, I'm not the guy. I'm learning every day. I look at it. Every time I look at it, I'm learning and I'm instructed. But here's what I'm coming to. Even us in the house of prayer who have emphasized who God is as a bridegroom God, these verses aren't foreign to us. Even us who have paid attention to a lot of it, I think we are barely scratching the surface on what God has been trying to communicate. I really don't think we've got it. I think we're barely getting it. And let me just propose this when we hear he's a jealous God, we don't go, yes. We all go, huh? That's intense. And when we puzzle at his nature, it lets, it just cues you in. We don't know him. When we don't love what he loves, and love is declarations of himself, I, I'll tell you, it's because we do not know him. And here's what I'm coming to. I think this. I think God's description of himself as husband is not primarily about, though it is about his tenderness, though it is about his mercy, and though it is about his his generosity towards us, I believe that God's declaration of himself as husband is far broader than sort of that whoosh of love that we feel. I think it's broader and bigger than that. I think it's an explanation of his jealousy. Husband equals jealous. Not in the negative sense either. Because God's version of jealousy isn't that. It's not that negative thing. It's not that insecure, envious, suspicious, distrustful kind of thing. We always associate it with that because that's our experience, this anxious, insecure person who's always looking over your shoulder. That's not what God's saying. God is fully secure, fully satisfied, he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need a compliment. He's not worried or wondering do they like me? Sometimes we paint God as the, in this beggarly role of sort of begging humanity please like me. Please. I really am better than Buddha. I am. Muhammad, he's not as good as Jesus, really. I mean, as if he's just sort of at this weakened place. That is so false. He is calling people to know his love in a season of mercy right now. And this God of a burning fire and desire for humanity is not in some weakened state, like some you know, hopeless romantic. I just wish the girl liked me. He's not at home crying, checking his Facebook every three seconds. Did she message me? He's not like chain looking at his phone, just a text message, please. He's not, he's not at all, he's so secure and powerful in his nature. He's so satisfied in love. And it's an amazing paradox that we find in God because he's fully satisfied in love in himself. And then like I showed you last week, he uses words like yearning and desire. And his heart is churning. And it describes how he feels towards us. And there again, we find this amazing weaving together of what seems to us as contradictory attributes. He's yearning and fully satisfied. How do you do that? I have no idea, but he's God. I don't even know how you do three in one, but whatever. Just, it is what it is. I don't know how you get up from the dead. I don't know how you make spirits and put them in bodies and people come. I don't know how you do any of that. He's God. He'll, he'll, he'll give us all the class. We get to go, you know, Forming the spirit of a man 101. Once we get to the other side, he'll show us how he does these things. But here he is. He's not this weakened romantic. Now, is he moved by our glance? Yes. Is his heart burning in desire for us? Yes. Is he insecure in his jealousy? Never. So then why does he say jealous? What's he even talking about? What's he even saying? And E, I give you three ways that we get a biblical picture of what God's jealousy is. Three ways he manifests his jealousy. And ultimately his jealousy is based on this. It's based on the fact that he actually believes he he is the owner of every one of us. His jealousy is based on the fact that he actually believes he's rightly due his people. He made us and he is due us. This was blowing my mind this week. Okay, imagine you order a pizza. Everybody gets a portion. There's four of you, eight pieces, your portion's two, right? When God explains what his portion is, what his inheritance is, his portion is us. It's us. Now think about it. This is the way of things. God, he's paid for something. He's paid for something and it's us. And he happens to think because he owns everything, he's created everything that he's due us. He happens to think that. Well, it would be no different than you if you, I don't know, knit a quilt and you knit your quilt, and you had it there in your home, you made it, and you thought, well, I, it's my quilt, I get to enjoy it. If your neighbor came in your house and said, I heard there's a quilt in here, and I want it, and went and grabbed up the quilt and wrapped himself up in it and rolled out in the dirt in your quilt, you'd be like, what are you doing? It's my quilt. It's mine. I made it. It's mine. And there would be no argument, Right? If he goes, no, 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 it's my quilt, and I want to roll in the dirt with it. You go, dude, I'm calling 911. Give me my quilt back. (laughs) He's like, no, it's mine. I want to make it dirty. You'd be like, okay, I'm dialing. (laughs) My neighbor just went weird. He grabbed my quilt. He's out in the mud. He's rolling around in it. Can you come arrest him? There would be no argument, right? Then why is there an argument somehow in our minds (laughs) when God has created people that somehow we think he's not due us, he doesn't, how do we, why do we think somehow he doesn't own us? Why, why do we think somehow that we own us and that we can do with ourselves what we want and that we're not his? Why, why do we think that? And then even the church, the verses that describe his full ownership are so extensive through the scripture from all of creation to every human that he wove their spirits together and put them in bodies to the bride that he's purchased with his son's blood, I have bought you. His ownership is complete. Why would we imagine that he's not due, rightly due, what he owns? And so when we're talking about jealously, jealousy, all we're talking about is this. He is rightly do what is rightfully his. He's rightly do what's rightfully his. And so it manifests in three ways. It's right there in E. Let me give it to you. First is this, fierce possessiveness. Let's just all say that together. One, two, three. Fierce Possessiveness. When he says, my name is jealous, he says, I am fierce possessiveness. And so this is what the I missed this point in your outline, but I wanted you to get this. When he says, My name is jealous, I'm a jealous God, he's not like you and I. He doesn't have a bout of jealousy, jealousy that comes on him. He sort of gets emotional for a minute, and he's okay. I won't be jealous too bad today. No. His jealousy is so intrinsic to his nature that, in the same way that he is love, he is jealous. In the same way. In fact, his love and his jealousy are are really one and the same. And so it manifests in fierce possessiveness. He actually thinks we are his, because we are. He actually thinks we are his. And he says it over and over and over again. And he says these phrases like, you are mine. (laughs) You are mine. You will be my people. You are mine. Over and over and over through the scripture, he thunders it. You've been bought with a price. You're mine. And in any way that that in some way rubs us the wrong way. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. We need to rethink who it is we're dealing with here. And, and so this is kind of where I'm at. He, he goes, I'm husband and you're mine. I'm husband and you're mine. I'm husband and you're mine. And it immediately got me thinking like this. Those of you that men that are married in the room, how much would you be willing to put up with your wife flirting with another man? How much? Oh, really? I mean, you wouldn't just let her text another guy, you know, a few hours at a time per day? That would be a problem. Oh, what about just one text message a day? What about just a little, I think you're cute, to another guy once a day? Would that work for you? I mean, we're talking, there's 23 other hours and, you know, 59 other minutes per day. Would one minute of I think you're cute to another guy work for you guys? What about just once a week? What about once a week? You guys go to the mall and she winks and smiles at every other man while she's holding your hand. Would that work for you? Are you feeling it? Are you feeling that? Okay, not once a week. What about just once a year? Her one night where she can talk on the phone to her her ex-boyfriend from high school for six hours. Only once a year, though. Would you be good with that? If you are good with that, dude, you need to wake up. There should be a passion and a zeal in you for your wife that cuts that junk off. I'm unapologetic about that. You don't need, ladies, you don't need to have your best friend, boyfriend from high school as your friend now. That's old news. You're a new creation. With a new husband. That's dumb. Here's the deal. He actually thinks we're his because we are and because we're rebellious, and because we want our own ways, and because we want to flirt with other lovers, we think he's got a problem when we wink at other guys. So when he says, I'm a husband, and you're mine, you're mine, you're mine, this is the jealousy of God. And I want... God to be jealous for me like that, because I've had the fill of my own ways and I've gone other the other direction and I've messed around with other lovers and every time it's worked out really bad for me. It's brought me destruction. I need a man, a God who will fight for me. There's a little bridal paradigm for you. He's not a helpless romantic. He's a burning bridegroom who's jealous. His name is jealous. So he expresses it in fierce possessiveness. He expresses it in his expectation of loyal love. That's what he, he requires of us, loyal love. It's like I was just saying. he, he, he doesn't want to put up with us flirting with other lovers. So the way, the way he explains this expectation is he says you will have no other gods before me. You will worship no other. And here's what we do. We look at the idolatry of the Bible and we go, oh, I'm clear of that. I'm not making any images of, you know, asherah poles or birds or animals or stars or whatever and worshiping. I'm not making any idolatry. Now, some of you think you know where I'm going, but you don't. Because you think, I'm about to say, but what we do is worship movie stars and athletes. But you've already heard that message. Our idolatry doesn't tend to be the outward idolatry, though that's really alive in the earth. I mean, if you go to, if you go to India and you see Hinduism and you see 100 million gods, you, you know that idolatry of worshiping idols, inanimate objects is really alive and well. And that in the earth today, and the devil ha- happily accommodates people that want to worship rocks and trees. That's real in the earth. And God speaks strongly against that. He goes, worship no other. But what we find in Ezekiel is this, that there's another idolatry that the Lord is really after. And this is what's most resident in the heart of the bride. And Ezekiel calls it in chapter 16, the idols of the heart. And what idols of the heart are, are when we have desires and longings in our heart that are for ourselves, that we have not in any way submitted to the lordship of Jesus, and we end up with our affection on our own desires, and we escalate that in in, in our pursuits above our pursuit of intimacy with God. Idols of our own heart. And God even told through Ezekiel, he told Israel, he goes, I will even allow them to prophesy to you about the idols of your own heart because your affections are so misplaced. I will give you the fill of the idols that you're going after, and then you'll find out what it's like to serve an idol rather than serving me. See, in his jealousy, what he does is he gives us the fill of serving other things, and he allows that to manifest in our lives, and we actually reap back the the negative reality of what it is to serve an idol. Because his jealousy says over us, you're mine, and I expect you to love me because I love you. I expect love back. I have an expectation of loyal love. The Hebrew word is chesed, chesed, when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, he goes, that, that mercy, that word mercy is loyal love. I desire loyal love. Look, God is not looking for you to run around proving to him through all sorts of works and actions and, and, and slave, you know, mentalities and th- that you love him. He wants loyal love from your heart. So many people trying to work out the, the, the proof of love. And they serve God running around. Please see me. Have, have mercy on me. See me. Say, I'm working hard for you. I love you. See, see, see. He goes, I already know your heart. I don't look at the outside. I look at the inside. I want it real from in here. Which is why I've got such a desire that we would never be a people that go through the motions in our prayer room environment, our worship leaders and our, our devotional sets and our intercessions and our encounter services and worship of the word, and all the times that we 're doing 24 hours a day worship it 's easy to get to this place where you just go through the motions that 's a lot of hours, but here 's what I've found: if we will just once again set our cold heart before that inferno of love that is God and just offer him with sincerity something that's authentic that's what he's really after he's not after your works he's after your heart he's not after all the proofs he's after your heart he wants loyal love and so it requires us to get out of internal idolatry And it requires us to get out of striving in the flesh. And it requires us to approach him with a heart that says, you love me and I love you. And I may never be anything. I may never have any natural earthly platform. I may never have anything to show for it in this life. I just want a life of faithful devotion to you. That's what you want and that's what I want to give. Half the time, the idol of our own heart is our own awesomeness. Man, Western ministry emphasizes so awesome your own anointing and how awesome you'll be in your own anointing. And I see so, this so often in young people. They can't get beyond their own image of themselves as an anointed person in ministry doing all these awesome things. And they think somehow that when they ascend the ministry ladder, then they'll sort of be accepted or then they'll sort of be like approved. Beloved, this is not about your ministry. You have a ministry. It's to the heart of God. Care about that one and then he'll he'll figure the other one out. Because if you're ministering to his heart, you'll start breaking for what his heart is broken with. I see so many frustrated young people in ministry. They're trying to find uh, their opportunity, their platform, and they're offended because they didn't get the chance that they thought they were gonna get. That's foolishness. Just love him. Just love him. If he wants to break you open and share you with someone else, let that be up to him. Most people don't realize that anointing comes through crushing an olive. Be careful what you want. You want an anointing? I guarantee you there's a crushing before there's ever any oil. Don't Just, just forget all that. Love him. Love him. Just love him. That's all he wants from you is, is, lo- is your love. Just love him. The third way that he, he manifests this jealousy, it's... It's in retribution and vengeance towards those who harm his people. And you read it through the scripture and you find chapters like Isaiah 10 where he promises the king of Assyria, I am going to bring back on you what you've done to my people. Even though I raised you up, king of Assyria, as an instrument of judgment, you took it too far. That's what he says. He goes, and I will pay you back. He says it in Zechariah, same thing. He goes, I raised them up to bring judgment towards my people, and they took it too far, and I will pay them back. 2 Thessalonians 1, he says, I will repay every single one who's, who's harmed his people. He goes, and I will pour out fury and fire upon them. What's the message? Don't jack with his wife. No, Really? I'm telling you, the martyr's blood that will be crying out at the end of the age. Crying out to the Lord, avenge me. We see it in Revelation 6. The amount of martyr's blood that will be spilled on this planet. The only explanation for what takes place and the bold judgments when God comes in fire and in wrath as he's answering the cry of the martyrs. The day of vengeance is in his heart, which is why he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And here's what I I need. I need a God that I'm so secure with that will fight for me. It's gonna make all the wrong things right. I need that. Because the last thing I need is to go just ballistic and trying to fight for myself. And here's the truth. When you dial into the truth of who he is, when you dial into the reality, the truth of his mercy and the truth of his justice, and you see the justice of God in manifestation, you see what that's about, you see the fury of a fire that will devour all the adversaries, you see him coming in flaming fire, you see him treading the wicked underneath his feet, and you understand who he is, then you don't cry out for vengeance against the adversaries, you cry out for mercy. You have mercy. Have mercy. I I am do the same without your grace. Have mercy on the adversaries. Oh, the most powerful cry of a praying bride is mercy to the one that's done injustice towards her. Oh my God. A manifestation of the nature and the knowledge of God. We're living in a season of clemency on the earth. We're living in a time where the mercy of God is released. The cross of Jesus Christ has made mercy available to all. And here's what people are mistaking right now they're imagining his mercy equals passivity. Do not mistake the mercy of God for him being passive. There is a day of reckoning, beloved. There's a day of reckoning. And it says, people will wonder. Man, everything has continued the same way it's been since all of creation. Where is the promise of his coming? And it, it, the scriptures are clear that while the bridegroom is away, so many will turn to debauchery. And, and this is a thing that's really just, it's just shocking. It's, it's, it shows shocking ignorance of the nature of God. And I'm not saying I'm the guy that knows everything about God. But I'll just tell you this. When you see the church, when you see people in the church and and they're trying to explain away the requirement of holiness under the banner of grace, they've completely misunderstood grace. Grace is not so you can get a ticket to go get drunk and fornicate. Grace is an enabling power that enables you to live holy and righteously with a God who is a consuming fire. That's what grace is for. It's such a bizarre twist to me that, that somehow there's this message that grace gives you a pass. That you just get to just live any old way. No, grace enables you to live his way, not your way. That's grace. And when we see this consuming fire who calls himself jealous, I guarantee you he's not saying, hey, just go sleep with a bunch of other men. I'm good. It's grace for me. What kind of a husband would that be? What kind of a husband would be fine with his wife living in adultery and saying, it's cool with me? No husband at all. And somehow we apply that mentality to God and we imagine that somehow grace is a a pass for the bride to just go indulge the lust of the flesh? Please, come on. Let's get real. When he says his name is jealous, he's never changed. When he says, I am husband, he's never changed. And this manifestation of his jealousy is so powerful. It's not this envious, insecure thing. (laughs) It's this fierce possessiveness, this expectation of loyal love, and this retribution on all who harm his beloved. So we come to this place where there's this powerful intersection between the love of God and the holiness of God. And it's there in the jealousy of God that 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 intersection is made manifest because he, he calls us to live according to his ways. And then he enables us by coming and rescuing us, shedding his own blood for us, and he enables us to begin to to relate to him, to to flow with him. You know, I said it last week. Some people, they go, well, you just don't understand my marriage. I mean, we are so different. It's just so hard for us to get along. We're so different. And I would tell you this. Your marriage, your marriage is an internship. It's a training program. Because you're about to marry someone that is so different. His eyes are fire. His name is jealous. He's a consuming fire. You have to get a new body just to be able to stand in his presence. He has to take eternity, put it on you, just so you don't disintegrate when he looks into your eyes. Are you different than your spouse? It's a training program. Because you are about to be married to the one who is infinity. What do you mean infinity? Infinity everything. He is forever. And his banner is love. And he expresses it with this term, jealous. We don't understand his fire. We don't understand consuming fire, God. It's so hard for us because there's such dichotomy in the way that we process We can't see mercy and judgment together, but that's him. We can't see it, but it's him. And I just think there's this place where we just do not know who we're messing with. We just don't have a clue who we're messing with. It freaks me out when I think we're gonna marry him. We're gonna marry him. Yeah, I made you to marry me. Like ferocious, fierce, fiery, tender, merciful, loving, kind, gentle, Powerful lamb and lion in one package, infinity incarnate in Christ, the hero, the savior, the most beautiful. He made us to marry him. I don't think we have any conception of where this thing is going. Look at this Leviticus verse. I, I, just, I just see the jealousy of God and expression and this crossing of, of the love of God and the holiness of God. Look at it. He says, you shall be holy to me for I am holy and I've separated you from the peoples. You shall be mine. Woo. Roman numeral two. So once we begin to understand what God was saying when he called himself consuming fire, when he called himself jealousy, it can now begin to inform all of the ways that we understand his activity in our lives, his activity in humanity, his dealings with with Israel. But if we misunderstand jealous, if we misunderstand this term jealous, jealousy, he calls himself jealous, jealousy, if we misunderstand that, we will misinterpret him, we'll misunderstand him we'll run away from him instead of to him. So I mentioned it here. I said, God first called himself jealous to Moses. Really, it was to, the, it was to the children of Israel. The first time he said jealous of himself, it was right dead smack in the middle of the 10 commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven images. I'm a jealous God. He goes, no other lovers. I'm jealous. And then the next time that we see it show up, is there when he gives his name and he says, My name is jealous. In other words, my nature is jealous. This is who I am. He's saying to us, His jealousy and his love, one reality. And so then we've got this very familiar verse that most Christians can quote because there's Christian songs and worship songs that we sing, consuming fire, etc. But for us, it's like this little tagline. Have you ever dealt with the idea that he's a consuming fire? You ever just closed your eyes and sat before him and said, express to me your heart as a consuming fire. See, for us, it can't be Christian cliche. It's gotta be recognition of the knowledge of who he is and we have to live in the, in the light of the, of the knowledge of him. So it informs our our entire lives. So let me give you the context. I'm just hammering now. I'm just hammering at home. We could do the altar call, but now I'm just driving more nails into the coffin. Deuteronomy 4, what's going on there? Here's what's going on. For a couple chapters, Moses has been unpacking Israel's history up to that point. And he's saying, guys, I'm not gonna go into the promised land, but here's where God took us from And here's where he's taking us to. And this is what's going on. This is what happened. And this is where it's going. And then he gets to chapter four and he says this there's this real big issue that I need you to dial into. Don't do idolatry. Don't begin to look at the stars and the sun and the moon and make images out of them to bow down and worship them. And don't make for yourself images of creeping things that walk on the ground and animals. Don't do idolatry. And he goes, Don't do that because our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And so, this explanation of his jealousy is all about this requirement of loyalty. And when you actually read it in context, man, it's, it's chilling because Moses explains to them, he goes, you're gonna turn on the Lord in a later day and when you do, you're gonna be removed from the promised land. But he won't give you up even then. He's gonna allow you to go through many trials and challenges. He's gonna allow you to go through many difficulties and he is going to be committed to you still because he's a God who's in covenant with his people and he keeps his promises so powerful. And here's what I find with some Christians, a lot of Christians actually, that when they backslide, it's like the most ugly thing you've ever seen. They go into sin, and what I mean by that is their life just takes on such a, an incredible trajectory of destruction. And I, and I just think about that because I look at other sinners, I go, well, they're doing the same thing. They're going out to bars, they're doing drugs, and their lives are, I mean, they've still got a job, they've still got a family. Like, but this one, man, it's like some kind of, expl- everything's blown to par- up to bits. What's happening here? And it's the jealousy of God. He lifts his protection and allows you to get the fill of what you worship. Because he's jealous for you. Because you want to see what it's like to serve other lovers? Go ahead. Let's see what they pay back to you. It's what he said in Hosea 2. He goes, I will hedge you in with thorns. And what I find is this. True Christians, believers that really have a relationship with God, when they, when they try to turn away from God, they, really, they make bad sinners. The, the level of jacked up in this, it just goes up so high. And it's the reason why is because he hedges you in with thorns. You go to the right, boom, ow, that hurt. And you look at all the other sinners out there and they're just doing great. They didn't lose all their money. They didn't lose all, you know, they're, they're not in a funk, they're not in depression, but man, the Christian guy turned to the right and boom, everything blew up and he's got thorns all up his side. Why? Because he's hedging you in. He wants you. He's your husband. Oh, church. You turn to the left. Ow! Why did it go so bad for you when you turned away from him? Because you're hedged in. He's jealous for you. He's not going to share you with another. He He doesn't put up with your winking at other men. Is that okay with that? Guys, we have to know him this way. The church has to know him this way. I'll tell you, this doesn't create insecurity in my soul. This creates such a solid security, a rod of iron in my soul to stand with allegiance and faithfulness and love to Jesus. He is so jealous for me. And he rescued me. I don't know how messed up you were. But man, he rescued me. I hated him. And he loved me still. It is Jealousy over me yet and I pray his jealousy would be over you I'm not talking about legalism, I'm talking about encountering a God who is fire who will not share you I tell you the bridal paradigm it's not just about his tenderness and he's oh so tender and kind it's about who he is as a jealous God of fire Jealousy, Proverbs 6, is a husband's fury. No wonder the day of vengeance is in his heart. The day that he can recompense his bride. The day that he can make all the wrong things right. He's not weak and he's not passive. Proverbs 6 says he won't accept one bribe. You can't pay him off. Nobody's going to be able to pay him off. Well, I didn't really mean all that stuff. I can just hear the voices at the judgment seat. I didn't mean all that that I did. I didn't mean all that. I didn't mean to speak negatively against Jews and I didn't I didn't mean to hate Jesus and I didn't mean He won't he won't accept one bribe. And then you get a verse like James four, and see James four to me, oh, it, it used to feel like this sort of slap. You adulterers and adulteresses, like pow, like man, I'm not an adulterer. I love Jesus, but what you when you understand, he's jealous. All of a sudden, the the string connects from the Old Testament to the New. And you go, oh my goodness. He was saying to Israel when she turned away that she was in spiritual harlotry. And James is speaking to the church that's grown lukewarm. And he's correcting their spiritual harlotry. So he's speaking to the church. And he's saying, adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. But look at verse 5. This is it. Do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? Which one, James? This is not even a verse. Let me just tell you something. James is not quoting a verse in the Old Testament. He's giving a summary statement of the Old Testament. Look it up. Scholars will tell you the same. This is not a passage that he's quoting. He's giving a reflection on the whole of the Old Testament. And what his reflection is this. He jealously desires the spirit which he's made to dwell in us. What does that mean? That means this. He made you and he wants you. He desires intimacy with your spirit. That's the summary statement. From James's paradigm. He's relentless and he's jealous. And I want to know him this way. And when we get this locked down in our soul, then these false conceptions of God that somehow pit his judgment and his mercy against one another, or somehow we go, well, no, he doesn't do judgment. It's all kindness. All of a sudden, when you see this odd dichotomy with different attributes of God pit against one another, you recognize that's not real. Because he is fully jealous, and and that jealousy is is coming from that, that volcanic love and desire of who he is, and he will not share his people. And so the activities of judgment and even wrath come out of that flame of burning fire. There's no no contradiction within him. He's fully united in his nature. And So when I see people trying to go, well, he doesn't do judgment anymore, I go, that's completely false. It's completely false. It's such a misunderstanding of who he really is. Now, I don't want to be so shocked. We're going to be shocked when we see him, but I don't want to be so shocked that I don't even recognize him. You know, I mean, talk about your blind dates. I mean, what? (laughs) It's already going to be that way, gang. I do not want to have such misconceptions about who he is that when I see him as he is, I turn away. Your God is a jealous God. His name is Jealous. He is your bridegroom. Amen, let's stand.